Well, I am just delighted to be going through this series with you on what is the normal Christian life. We are looking at Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 24, and we're asking the question, does Paul's description here describe the internal struggle of the average Christian? Is this a description of the normal Christian life? In other words, is the slavery to sin in the realm of the flesh and the demands of the law typical for the average Christian? And so, if not, what is Paul representing? And then we'd have to still answer the question, what is the normal Christian life? Now, before we go any further, I want to make it clear that I am not suggesting some kind of uh, triumphalism. I am not in any way suggesting, suggesting that Christians do not struggle. That uh, would be absurd. <laughs> uh, Christians do struggle, and they struggle mightily at times. In fact, Paul makes provisions for that in many places, and including Galatians 6, one where he actually says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So we see there clearly that uh, Christians do struggle and sometimes get caught in sin. Uh, And that we are to, however respond to them as people who walk by the Spirit, who live by the Spirit, and then to restore them, and please listen to this now, in the gentleness of the Spirit. Very important. We are to restore people who are caught in sin or any trespass in the gentleness of the Spirit himself. And so, Uh, What we don't do, of course, is hang the Ten Commandments around their neck and tell them to to buck up (laughs) or to use them, worst worst, uh, of all, to use them as an example of how pious we are because, after all, we're not that bad. That's exactly what Paul is discouraging in Romans, excuse me, Galatians chapter 6. So, So that said, I just want you to understand that I understand that there's uh, groanings that go on. And we're going to talk about that before we finish this series. What does it mean, then, if if the normal Christian life is to walk in the Spirit uh, by grace and not under law, struggling with the flesh? What do we do with the groanings that we have? Because we do live in these unredeemed bodies. We are... Uh, our inward man is being renewed daily, but our outward person is our outward man is being uh, wasting away daily. I mean that's pretty clear. If I look at pictures of myself ten years ago and pictures today, it's clear that I'm wasting away. But I'm at the same time, I am in greater fellowship and intimacy and and um, communication with the Lord, and are spiritually more mature. Thanks be to God by His mercy and healthy than I was 10 years ago. So so good things are happening while our outer person, our, our bodies are wasting away as we await the return of our Lord and the reception of glorified bodies after his own glorified body. So, so in part two, let me just give you a little bit of a review. Today will be part three. 
we decided to examine the context of Romans 7, uh, 7 through 24, uh, and to, to look at the bookend context, meaning Romans 7, 1 through 6, and Romans 8, 1 through 4. We didn't get into Romans 8, 1 through 4, so we'll look at that today. Uh, but by review, I want to share with you again what we talked about in case you're new to this study. If you are, in, in fact, I encourage you to go back uh, to the intro and, and bring it forward. It'll be of great help to you. Anybody who knows me knows that I don't do these studies because I'm bored or because I just need the intellectual stimulation or because uh, I think you just like to listen to Bible studies. I uh, I do these studies for very important pastoral reasons. Uh, theology without pastoral application is just a waste of time, really. And so we, we want to grow spiritually. Spiritual growth should be the uh, natural consequence, natural result of any kind of theological study. Uh, so, had that said, what we did last time was we looked at Romans 7, 1 through 6. You know, it is amazing what can be resolved by simply looking at a passage within its context. It's the simplest thing to do within Bible study. You don't need to be a scholar. You don't need to be uh, even have any Bible training. Uh, you can be a novice to the faith and still understand that you ought to read Scripture, not as a set of individual passages laid up verse by verse, but within its context, within the totality of the thought that the Apostle is setting forth. It reminds me of when I uh, once had a uh, an electrical device that I was certain had just gone on the blink. It just it, it was just dead. I, it would never work again. And a friend of mine told me to simply turn it off, unplug it, and then let it sit for a while, and then plug it back in. And lo and behold, it reset and it was fine. I mean, it's that kind of a simple thing to do. <laughs> you just have to stop and reset your thinking by looking at the text within the context. So, having done that, we examined uh, Romans 7, 1 through 6 as the immediate context. And we discovered that Paul is speaking to those who know the law. Now, uh, he's not speaking necessarily to uh, unregenerate Jews. He's not speaking to the Jewish community. Uh, he's more than likely speaking to those Jewish Christians who are in Rome and including those God-fearers, they call them, uh, God-fearing Gentiles who had converted to Judaism and now were uh, also converted to Christ. And so they were now in Christ together. So there was a familiarity with the law is the point here, especially, of course, amongst the Jewish Christians. So, And then he goes into an analogy from marriage. Uh, and it's a relational knowledge, I told you, not a transactional uh, analogy. It's a relational presentation of what happens between the believer in Christ, that when we are united with Christ, we are released from the law. We are released from that which once bound us, he said. And so we are released from the law. We died to the law so that, there's the perfect clause, we might belong to another. 
and of course the other to whom we belong is to Christ himself that you might belong to another to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God so just as a married couple comes together and bears fruit in the form of children to God so also when we are united with Christ in this marriage analogy we as the bride of Christ we are united with Christ and we bear fruit to God and what is the fruit that we bear what would be the fruit that we bear where where is it commonly spoken of that we have fruit and that of course is in Galatians chapter 5 the fruit of the spirit so it is not the fruit of death as under the law it is the fruit of the spirit love joy peace long suffering goodness meekness temperance faith against which by the way there is no law so the essence of what Paul is doing here is he's building his case he's building his case that now that we have died with Christ in Romans chapter 6 in Romans chapter 7 he's building his case for life in the spirit now that we are no longer under law know that we are no longer subject to being obliged to the lusts of the flesh we are dead to sin he who is dead died is dead to sin and the law by the way he says that quite clearly so that we might belong to another and we we are now able to live a new life and so he says in verse 6 but now by dying to what once bound us that being the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code now that's very important there's a new way and there's an old way and it's heartbreaking it's it's um, distressing that there are still those today who would teach you that you were to walk in the old way of the letter there are those today as the old Jewish rabbis used to teach that the, the law, in fact, curbs sin, that you can use it as a method of curbing sin. And I've even, I have to admit that I've even had that thought myself at times. I've even mentioned in my teachings at times that, that the law will curb sin. And that's one of Calvin's famous, uh, famous three uses of the law, that it curbs sin in society. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Bible teaches quite clearly that the law, and Paul teaches in Romans 7 here, that it actually incites or excites, if you will, sin, so that we become worse. It magnifies sin. Far from restraining sin, it makes sinners worse if they try to keep to it, if they try to live by it. So the law is not a restraining influence. I know that makes really wrangle some of you folks but but it, it isn't it's the the biblical testimony and i think the personal experience if we're honest is that the law simply uh points out and reveals uh, the sin and, and that which might have been uh, un un um uh passion dispassion before is now a, a great passion this is paul's point when he says once i was alive in Romans 7, 9, once I was alive from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang in li to life and I died. 
he said uh, in verse 7, For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. So sin enlivens, excites, and it makes, uh, uh, I mean, excuse me, law excites the sin, makes it even worse. So, okay, so we have came to the conclusion then in our last study that we can conclude that the normal Christian life is to serve in the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the letter or the written code. Let me say that again. The normal Christian life is not that which Paul describes in Romans 7, 7 through 24. But he makes very clear in Romans 7, 6, as his prelude to that section, that the Christian life, the normal Christian life, for those who have died to sin, those who have died to the law, is to belong to another, namely him who rose from the dead on our behalf, in order that we might bear fruit for God. And of course, that fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. So that, having been released from what once bound us, that being the law, we now serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I don't know how that could be much plainer. The new way of the Spirit, and not way, and not in the way of the written code. This is um, Paul's point two in Galatians five sixteen, where he says, "So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh." Period. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul is not suggesting anywhere in his writings that we walk by the law. That we look to Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which would be, in Jewish thought, the law, as our means of sanctification. Especially the, the so-called moral law, the Ten, Ten Commandments, as our means of sanctification. So he says, rather, walk by the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God, is the Holy Spirit, the holiness of the Spirit, if you will, that sanctifies those in whom the Spirit dwells. The Spirit is our restraining influence today, not the law. The law never was a restraining influence. The law did not make Israel a holy nation. If you look at the history of Israel, from the time of Sinai until the time of Christ, it was not a story of success. It was a story of progressive sin, idolatry, sin, failure, repentance, judgment, sin, repentance, judgment, idolatry, until the exile. The, the kings, the monarchs of Israel, were, were progressively worse, with few but rare exceptions. So being in possession of the law did not serve Israel as far as salvation is concerned or their personal holiness as a nation. In fact, we remember that it was in Acts chapter 7, having laid out the whole history of Israel, that Stephen, just before he was martyred, of course, uh, uh, said um, 
in verse 53 of Acts chapter 7, you have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Earlier he said to them, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, we understand, again, that this is, does not mean that the law is bad. The law is just and good and holy. The law is God's law. So it cannot be anything but just and good and holy. Um, Paul is simply making the argument in Romans 7 that the law cannot sanctify us. It cannot save us. What it can do is frustrate us and put us into this point of despair where we will be only looking forward to eschatological condemnation. Now, what do I mean by eschatological? I mean that, that final judgment, that day that God has appointed, that divine appointment in which God will judge all people who have ever lived and who are living at the time. There will be a final resurrection. There will be a final judgment. And Paul's big point in Romans 7, 7 through uh, 24 is that trying to find righteousness by keeping the law simply will never work. It will only lead to despair. Only leads to despair in the anticipation of condemnation. So that brings us now to our conclusion from last week that the, the normal Christian life is the life in the Spirit, the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. It's the new and living way that is talked about in the letter to the Hebrews as well. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, Paul refers to himself as a minister of the new covenant, not of the letter. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So this is the testimony throughout the New Testament that it is the Spirit that separates the people of God today. Not Sabbath-keeping, not law-keeping, not tithing, not even church attendance. What marks out the people from the world, the people of God from the world, is the presence in and among the people of the Spirit of God, His very own presence. It's a beautiful and powerful thing. So, now this, I might add, real briefly, is important today because we live in a time in Christian history where most Christians are Trinitarian in creed, but binitarian in experience and practice. Let me say that again. We live at a time when most Christians are Trinitarian in creed and Binitarian in experience and practice, meaning they have either quenched the Holy Spirit or they have uh, come to a point where they simply do not acknowledge Him. And there are even those who are unregenerate who insult the Spirit of grace. And there are those who, of course, grieve the Spirit but seldom do how are we taught to rely upon the Spirit. Some of that I realize today is in a reaction to the 
wild-eyed craziness, the insanity of the charismania that goes on around us, and we certainly don't want to be uh, aligned with them. We don't want to be uh, anyone to suggest that we, we are doing what they do. So we tend to play down the role in the ministry of the Spirit, but that's a, that's a fallacious reaction. Rather, we should defend the ministry of the Spirit against the charismatics. Rather, we should defend the work in the biblical role of the Spirit in our life. And, and not just simply quit speaking of him or avoid uh, expressing our trust in him because the charismatics have taken it to such a heretical degree. And so uh, we want to reclaim our Trinitarian faith, not just in creed, but in practice. We know that it is the Father who uh, initiated salvation. It is the Son who came into human history and accomplished our salvation. And we know that without the Spirit, none of that would have mattered. It would have been certainly altogether valuable, but it would have never been a, a, a applied without the Spirit. So the, so the Trinitarian economy of, the, of salvation is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That which the Father initiated and the Son accomplished is affected and applied by the Spirit. And you must have all three elements of that if you're going to understand and experience the fullness of what it means to be a Christian. So we must not do as James Sawyer said and drop back to some kind of a Father, Son, and Holy Bible thinking. Where, and we hear that in our language, by the way. We hear that in language today. People talk about why well, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. And I believe in the Bible. I hear that so often. And I often wonder, every time I hear it, well, what about the Holy Spirit? I mean, an authentic response would be, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Lord of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, and his accomplished work on my behalf. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, who affects, makes that work effectual in my life. See, that would, be, that would be a Trinitarian response. And yes, we look to the guidance of the inspired scriptures as our sole authority. But it isn't Father, Son, Holy Bible, is it? It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, that said, let's look now at part three today and the newness of life that we have um, and how it is that we can walk in that. So, Paul concludes Romans chapter 7, then, with that great cry of despair, What a wretched man I am! And again, he's speaking here of what it's like to live without the Spirit, to attempt in your flesh, to attempt without the Spirit, an unregenerate person, especially a good, God-fearing Jew, Someone who wants to keep the law, who has a high view of the law. You don't, let me just insist on this. You don't have to be a regenerate person to respect the law, especially if you are a Jew. If you are Jewish, of Jewish heritage, you've been raised to respect and honor the Torah. You've been raised in respect to honor the Ten Commandments. You have a high view of the law. Many unbelieving Jews have a high view of the law. 
So that is not something unique to a regenerate Christian. So Paul has a, uh, a um, description here where he's identifying himself with his Jewish people and saying, we had the law. We couldn't keep it. It led us only to despair. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. And we'll learn that what Paul is saying there is that in his mind, he may acknowledge the, the, the value and the worth of the law, but he can't keep it. The mind set on the flesh cannot keep God's law. A simple fact. Does not want to. Acknowledges its value, understand its worth, but cannot keep it. Nor in the recesses of an unregenerate mind does it want to. Okay. Romans chapter 8. Therefore, famous passage, isn't it? Of great comfort to so many believers. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was, what? Powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh. God did, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that, there's the purpose clause, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, many things to unpack there. So first of all, we want to rejoice in the fact that there's no eschatological condemnation awaiting you who are in Christ Jesus. Now, we have grown common. That's a common thought. We have grown accustomed to that thought. Uh, and we've lost some of the sense of the glory that that represents to us. And we're reminded of the, the need for that and the cry that we just mentioned in Romans 7, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? I mean, it cannot be anything but horrific to have the law and to realize that everything in you is opposed to the law and the consequence for that will be condemnation, divine condemnation, eternal condemnation. Eternal hell is the destiny for those who do not meet the righteous requirement of the law. But the good news of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, thanks be to God, we have been delivered both from sin and from death and from the obligation to the flesh. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore no eschatological condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Think of that. Just let that settle in. 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not today, not tomorrow. If you stumble, if you get caught in a sin, you can be restored. You can be forgiven. Your Heavenly Father will discipline you, by the way. There's two points for the Christian to understand about the normal Christian life. One is that you are under the restraining influence of the Spirit. The Spirit is He who enables and empowers the Christian life so that we can walk like Jesus, we can think like Jesus, we can talk like Jesus, and we can um, speak of Jesus accurately through the Scriptures. We can proclaim Him through the Scriptures. Uh, and it is the Spirit who comforts us, comforts us also when we stumble, when we fall. If we are caught in a sin, as we just mentioned in Roman, excuse me, Galatians 6.1, that we are to restore those who are caught in sin uh, with the Spirit that the, gent the gentleness, excuse me, that the Spirit gives. So that we're, there is no, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because in Christ Jesus, Notice he says Christ Jesus. He's speaking of a messianic term here. He's speaking of the Messiah. The Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the one the long-awaited one, the one who would come and deliver his people from their sins. That's the great promise in the Christmas hymn. Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit uh, who gives life, has set you free from the law of of sin and death. There's another contrast. And this letter is filled with contrasts. The law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free. Free from what? Free from the law of sin and death. So we're no longer walking around with our heads bowed and our shoulders rounded, laboring under the law, attempting to keep something that only burdens us but we cannot keep knowing that death alone waits us for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh remember the law is good and just and holy it's a reflection of God's own character but, it, but we could not reflect that because in our natures we were something other than godly the flesh, the law was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Period. Done. No more attempting to relate to God on the basis of the flesh. No more attempting to relate to God or find acceptance with God on the basis of law. Very important. We see where that took us. Paul could not have been more clear in Romans 6, 7, and 8 that we do not and we must not and we may never attempt to relate to God again on the basis of law. It will never take us any place different, folks. Important to understand that you have been joined to another that you belong now to Christ, in Christ. What's incredible is that Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, I think it is. Yes. He says, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. 
Another translation would be estranged from Christ. So you have that marriage, that bride and that groom analogy again here. In fact, in Galatians 5.2, let's read that context. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Paul never, nor did any of the apostles, nor does the Old Covenant, address the law as some kind of a tripart difference between civil law, ceremonial law, and um, moral law. That was something that Thomas Aquinas came up with. Uh, much later, hundreds of years later, it was never part of the New Testament teaching on the law. Paul never dealt with the law in some kind of a tri-division, three-part division. He never said, well, yes, you don't have to keep the civil law anymore, and you don't have to keep the ceremonial law, but you are required to keep the, the, the moral law, meaning the Ten Commandments. That was a doctrine that was developed in the Reformed world in order to, again, try to restrain unregenerate believers within the state church. There is no such thing as the moral law. There's just the law. I sure hope you're getting this, folks, because this is so important that we subscribe to New Testament teaching and not to the traditions, even our Protestant traditions, in which there is so much good, but there's still traditions. And they're therefore faulty, and they're therefore weak. And we must always judge our traditions, whether you're Lutheran or Reformed or Anglican. We must always, or Baptist, we must always judge our traditions against the light of the Word of God, and never the other way around. So Paul says here, You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated or estranged from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Boy, those who flirt with the law today, who think that they can claim to be a Christian who professes salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone and then impose law on you and on themselves, whether it's Sabbath-keeping or some kind of feasts or dietary laws or some kind of uh, tithing law, are just flirting with disaster. It's, it's, it's spiritual adultery is what it is. If, if you look closely at this text, Paul is saying very clearly here that if you begin to relate to God on the basis of law at any point in the Christian life, you are, you are estranging yourself from your husband. To use that marriage analogy again. You are estranged from Christ. You are estranged from Christ. You have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Very important. We relate to God on the basis of Christ's finished work alone. By grace, through the Spirit. Okay, so God did this in the, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. The flesh and the law have nothing to offer us. It's condemned. In order that, you know, this is the most 
powerful part of this study. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Another translation would be, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So take a moment now and consider what I'm saying. Because this is the utter profundity of actually grasping the truth of the scriptures as opposed to clinging to our old traditions. Paul is saying here clearly that those who walk according to the Spirit are now fulfilling the law. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We, at one time, if we tried to relate to God on the basis of law, which most of us as Gentiles never did, we, we came to Christ out of our sins, we heard the good news of the gospel of our salvation, and we responded, having had no familiarity with the old covenant law anyway. But let's look back and just consider the paradigm here for a Jew. A Jew who had struggled with the law, as Paul so aptly describes in Romans 7. And longed, the dream would be that we could actually keep the law and please God perfectly. And it was impossible. We couldn't even keep the law imperfectly. We were utter failures at it. And now he's saying, because of the Spirit who gives life, has set us free from the law of sin and death, that God has done by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Fulfilled in who? We who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, very important point here. When he makes that statement, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He's speaking in absolutes. He's speaking not in a prescriptive manner, meaning he's not saying, so make sure that you walk in the Spirit and not the flesh today. You know, it's not something that, that God says to you on the way out in the door, this on your way to work, and then going into traffic, and dealing with your fellow employees or in the school or wherever you go throughout the day, be careful you go out in the marketplace that you don't walk in the flesh, okay? You have to walk in the Spirit. That would be prescriptive. But that isn't the nature of this text. This is descriptive. And what I mean by that is he is describing the one who is in Christ, the one who belongs to Christ, the one who is in union with Christ. The one who has died to sin and who has died to the law and is now in union with Christ, faithful union to Christ, by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, are those who walk according to the Spirit. They belong to the realm of the Spirit. It's an absolute. He's describing the normal Christian life. Let me say it again. The normal Christian life are those who do not live according to the flesh because they've died to sin and to the law. But now walk according to the Spirit. 
And then he goes on in verse 5 to elaborate on this. It's very important that you finish this. We're getting towards the end of this study, so stick with me. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. He just described the unbeliever. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. He just described the believer. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Do you want life and peace? Of course we do. That's your birthright. That's, again, the normal Christian life is life and peace. The mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. We've already been talking about that. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so, period, zip, and full stop. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Unbelievers cannot please God. I don't care how religious they are. I don't care if they're Jewish or Christian. I don't care what they are. I don't care if they're third generation Lutheran, Catholic, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, what have you. If they are not regenerate people, if they have not been born of the Spirit, you must be born again. That's the point. Because those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Now let me close with just this final reading then. You, however, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. Period. Full stop. These are absolutes. You're not in the flesh Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and in the spirit Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturday, and Sunday. You're not in the spirit when you're at church and in the flesh on Monday night football. <laughs> it's not how it works. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. There you go. There's the marker. There's the chief primary marker that, that separates the people of God from the people of the world, the unbelieving world, from those who are in Christ, and that is the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then he makes this ominous statement, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. That is the criteria. That's the criterion. I don't care if you have many or one criterion. If indeed, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. That's what defines the Christian. Not the law, not church going, not sacraments, not baptism, not membership in the church. What separates and defines the Christian is that you have the Spirit of Christ. But if Christ is in you, though even then even though the, your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. So your outward person is wasting away and your inward person is being renewed daily. And if the Spirit who raised him from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. That is yet to come. We are awaiting our glorified bodies. So we are in a now and not yet state. 
We are living in the realm of the spirit, no longer in the realm of the flesh. We no longer belong to this present evil age from which Jesus bled and died to save us. We are now members of the future age to come in the present moment, under grace, under a new covenant, new creations, living out the life of the future in the power of the Spirit. That is the new Christian life. That is the normal Christian life. Okay, well, we're going to pause there. And next time we get together in our final uh, episode, we will talk about what it means to work this out in our life and how we are to deal with the fact that while we have a new nature, that we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, and that we walk in the realm of the Spirit, what are we supposed to do with these old bodies of ours who simply are belonging to this creation in which we groan, these, these bodies that are at times diseased, that are oftentimes achy, that do, do hold us back, and, and through which sin, if it comes at us, it will come through our unrede unredeemed parts of our bodies. And so how do we deal with that? We're not obligated to the flesh, remember. We're obligated to live according to the Spirit. And we'll talk about some very practical application of that next time we're together. So please come back. Please join me. That will be the conclusion of this series. And we will have some delightful, rejoicing summary to be able to realize again and be able to proclaim and help others realize that their normal Christian life is a beautiful thing. It's a powerful thing. It's a glorious thing. It's not a veil of tears. It is a glorious thing. May the Lord strengthen you and keep you until we talk again. Amen.